Welcome to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Satirius Johnson. This episode, I'm happy to report, we're all about food and drink, exploring great places to eat and imbibe in California. We'll learn about some fantastic places to sip craft spirits from San Diego to the Eastern Sierra. You might not expect to find a distillery up in the mountains, but there are a number of cases where that's true, predominantly up in Mammoth Lakes. We'll also talk with the founder of the California Cheese Trail, Vivian Strauss. And burrata is that incredible mozzarella with the cream inside of it that's wrapped inside. And it's, oh my gosh, it's so rich and cool and delicious. And we'll talk with the host of a new Los Angeles Times video series called Off Menu that tracks down some of the best food in Orange County and across the Southland. It's all coming up on California Now. California is home to many growing industries, but one you might not often think about is distilleries. And much as you can enjoy the experience of visiting a vineyard or a brewery, the same is increasingly true with artisan spirits. My next guest works at the Blinking Owl Distillery in Santa Ana, smack in the middle of Orange County. Ryan Friesen is also vice president of the California Artisanal Distillers Guild. Welcome to California Now, Ryan. Thank you, Satirius. Super happy to be here. So, you know, I, I know about trade organizations affiliated with California's wine industry and the uh, the rapidly expanding craft beer scene here in the Golden State. But uh, until very recently, I had no idea that distillers had banded together, too. What can you tell us about the origins of the California Artisanal Distillers Guild? Yeah, the guild got started um, in 2012, and it was founded by a couple of some of our older distillery members, uh, Napa Valley Distillery. St. George Spirits and uh, Dry Diggins Distillery, all kind of based up in the Bay Area, Sacramento area. They basically just saw what uh, the other industries were doing and that that craft distilling was starting to become a thing. And they had a critical mass of people who were interested and uh, decided to found a a guild or an industry organization to advocate on behalf of this new growing field. Uh, Well, how many members do you have and, and how much is it growing? There are about 200-ish licenses in the state, people who are doing this kind of work. Uh, But that includes a wide variety of different kinds of distilleries. But we have about 50 members right now, paying members, and uh, we are really pushing to grow that because we want to represent the entire state. Do certain regions have certain specialties as, as far as what they're distilling? Yeah, to a degree. People in the the Central Coast and Valleys area, specifically Paso Robles area, they're doing a lot of work with wineries. So you find this uh, deep collaboration between distilleries and wineries. In some cases, they are both one and the same, a winery and a distillery, because they're using um, the same base material, which is grapes or grape juice to make their either wine or distilled spirit. In, In that case, it'd be a brandy. Huh. And like, you know, in winemaking, there's this idea of terroir, that, that the surrounding environment dictates what ends up in the bottle. How important is that for, for whiskey or, or other spirits? Really just as important. Um, the process of distillation um, is one further step beyond what a winery or a brewery would do. But it doesn't mean that there's any less of that character coming through. You just have to think about it in a different way. Um, I mean, it depends on what you're making it from. If you're making it from grain or fruit, 
fruit or some type of sugar, molasses or cane sugar to make a rum. Um, But all of those things will express in the final product. Well, you know, it's interesting because one thing that I noticed about uh, the Blinking Owl, your your distillery, uh, that you guys take pride in is being a 100% California product. It seems like the state's agricultural bounty gives distillers a lot of advantages. Can you talk a little bit about why that matters to the to the end product? The owners early on wanted to make a commitment to buying and sourcing grain from California, both to support the regional California grain economy. We make grain-based spirits, so that's things like corn, wheat, rye, uh, and malted barley. Early on, we weren't even able to get everything from California, but we, within about a year, year and a half, we were able to develop relationships inside the state where we were able to do that. And um, it, it's it's all about keeping things close. So uh, you're reducing your carbon footprint, but you're also telling a story about farmers and you're telling a story about water in California, which we know is so important. So being a California-centric product was core to our beginning. And it's true for a lot of other people as well. Why don't we talk about a few places in some of the different regions of the state? Can you tell us about two or three distilleries that would be a great place to start? Let's start out and say San Diego and move our way north. Yeah, San Diego is a great place to start. They've got about 17 craft distilleries in the greater San Diego area right now. If you're, if you're downtown, make sure to check out a place called Old Harbor. They make a gin there, and they've been doing it in San Diego for just about as long as anybody, I think. And then not too far away from there, um, up in Miramar, which is just on the north side of San Diego, is a distillery called Malahat, Malahat Spirits, and they make uh, rum. They um, make some really cool stuff, and they've got this really neat entry into their distillery where you kind of feel like you're you're walking through uh, crates, and there's hanging ropes and stuff like that, like you're on the, on the docks down by the bay or something like that. It's a really cool, uh, cool place, cool experience, and great spirits. So when you go to these places, is it kind of like a wine tasting where you can take a tour and then you can also have, you know, you sit at a bar and the person will help you kind of will walk you through the different uh, spirits that they produce and the differences in them and you get a little taste of them and that kind of thing? Exactly. Pretty much what you would normally expect to find at a winery um, or even to some degree a a brewery where you can get little tiny samples. They're generally going to be one quarter ounce pours. And um, in the state of California, we're limited to serving six of those per customer per day, Uh, but that's plenty. That's more than enough. That amounts to about one full drink. Most folks are going to be making at least that many different kinds of spirits, so you're going to get to try a wide variety of what an individual manufacturer might be making, and they're going to walk you through it from start to finish. Like I said before, we're a really open group of people. We like to talk about our spirits, and we like to talk about how we make them and what makes them unique and interesting and different from um, uh, other places. All right, let's move up north uh, from San Diego. Where is where's the next uh, kind of region or city or area that we want to go to? And where's a couple spots there? Sure. And if you're just driving north out of San Diego, you're going to go right past folks like uh, Henneberry Spirits or Seven Caves, which are uh, up hugging the coast there. Um, and then uh, Oceanside Distillery, as you keep driving north towards Orange County, and uh, you're eventually going to drive past uh, Drift Distillery in San Clemente, which is, a, uh, they, they're making a wheat whiskey from wheat grown in Kansas, actually. Huh. So it's a really unique product that uh, from their own farm there in Kansas. Um if you stay on the I-5, just driving north, you're going to drive right past the Blinking Owl Distillery. So make sure you stop in and say hello to us. And <laughs> we'll do the whole tour and everything. Um, and then uh, if, you, if you keep going up towards L.A., 
Lost Spirits Distillery, where they're doing a totally different style of uh, manufacturing, which uh, kind of is a big departure from what you'll find at most other places. They're actually doing some uh, heat extraction of flavors and a unique distillation process. You got to check it out. Um, and the tour itself, they've they've probably more than anybody put um, a really unique spin on giving a tour. It's kind of a Disneyified version of a craft distillery tour. All right, let's keep on moving north. If you keep driving north uh, through LA, there's a bunch of really cool distilleries there that I'd, I'd love to be able to mention them all, and you got to check them out. But uh, if you keep going up the coast, you're going to go through Oxnard and Ventura, and you're going to pass um, some folks there who are doing some interesting things where they're smoking corn and trying to get a smoky flavor into their bourbons that way, which is a really unique uh, and different way to do it. That's uh, Sespe Creek. Um, and then if you just cut in from there and uh, jump over to, to the Paso Robles area, which is a, sort of a central coast wine region hub for California, you're going to find folks like the Villacanas at Refine Distillery and Mike Blash down at uh, Wineshine. Both of these guys are making some grain-based spirits like whiskeys, but they're also making spirits based on the uh, fruit of the land right there in Paso Robles, which is the uh, venerable grape. And they're turning that into brandies and all kinds of flavored vodkas and and, um, lots of really fun drinks like that. All right, that's great. Well, let's keep on moving north. What's next? Yeah, if you've uh, finished your uh, day trips in Paso Robles, you can keep going up the coast and you'll hit places like uh, Venus Spirits in Santa Cruz. Um, and then you can hop over the hills there towards uh, South Bay area or San Jose and hit places like 10th Street Distillery, which is making a single malt whiskey. And make sure you stop in at uh, Osocalis Distillery, one of uh, California's oldest distilleries making brandies. Um, that's South Bay area. Uh, and then if you swing up around the east side, you're going to be in the Oakland area. And um, you'd be remiss if you didn't stop in Alameda at St. George Spirits. They are probably the oldest distillery in California, maybe in the country. They've been doing this since the early 80s. Uh, Everyone's got to check them out. One of the granddaddies in our industry. And what do they specialize in? They're uh, they're probably best known for their gins. They have three different gins that um, are widely distributed. Uh, but they they got started making fruit based spirits, and um, as often happens in this industry, tastes change, and you find that you need to change with them. So they started making those gins, and uh, they also have a range of whiskeys and uh, as well as a single malt. So they make a lot of different products. So it's pretty amazing that like you can go pretty much almost anywhere in the state of California and find you know, uh, people doing this, whether it's uh, out in the rural areas or in a city like LA or San Francisco. Um, How about in wine country? Is anything happening up there? Definitely. And uh, whenever you think wine, you should th- you should be thinking about spirits because the next step is to turn a grape-based wine into a grape-based spirit or a brandy. And where better to do that than in Napa Valley or Sonoma Valley? Um, Napa Valley Distillery, as I said in the beginning, is one of the founders of the Craft Distillers uh, Guild here in California. They've been doing it for a long time and they're making um, some uh, great brandies and also whiskeys as well. Hanson of Sonoma is another one that comes to mind. Uh, spirit Works in Sebastopol. They're um, doing a lot of really cool local, very similar to us in that, that they're sourcing grains from California to make their whiskeys. Uh, so in wine, wine country is a great place. So you've got breweries, you've got wineries, and you've also got distilleries now popping up there. Well, what's, what's one other destination in California where people might not expect to find folks crafting artisanal spirits? Um, you might not expect to find a distillery up in the mountains, but there are a number of cases where that's true, uh, predominantly uh, up in Mammoth Lakes. There's actually two distilleries up there. Shelter and um, Mam- uh, Mammoth Lakes Distillery is making 
they're they're making whiskeys up there. Uh, high altitude, so you have to think about things a little bit differently when you're doing your your cooking processes. But um, uh, there, it's you know those are hot spots to be at, and it's a really cool place to be able to find something like this. You've for sure found a brewery there before, but now you can find a distillery. And then if you went down from Mammoth uh, into the Owens Valley, you're going to run into Owens Valley Distillery, which is right on the 395 in Bishop. Such a beautiful space on that other side of the mountain there. The Eastern Sierras is one of my most favorite places to go. That is so fantastic. Ryan, thank you so much for your insights. It's really been great learning about the artisanal distillery movement, and I've really enjoyed uh, chatting with you today. Oh, thank you, Soterius. It's my pleasure. We, uh, we love telling the story about California craft spirits, and uh, uh, that's what we're here to do. Ryan Friesen is head distiller at the Blinking Owl in Orange County, online at blinkingowl.com. He's also vice president of the California Artisanal Distillers Guild, which is at cadistillers.org. You can find links to everything we talked about today on our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. This is California Now. We've talked before on California Now about wine, and now we're about to explore one of the best things to pair with a lovely bottle of red, California cheese. The Golden State is the nation's leading producer of milk, and the state's love of dairy is exemplified by the California Cheese Trail. It's a map, app, and guide to some 84 creameries and artisan cheesemakers around the state. Here to tell us about the California Cheese Trail is its founder, Vivian Strauss. She's a writer and self-professed cheese maven and cow addict. Welcome to California now, Vivian. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea of visiting a vineyard, maybe taking a tour and seeing how the grapes are grown and the wine gets made and and doing a tasting. It sounds like you set out to apply a similar concept to cheese. I did. And you know, I'm not really a wine person, but I am a dairy girl. And my goal is and always will be to save small farms. So this was a project I took on. You call yourself a dairy girl. Tell us a little bit about your story. I mean, uh, you grew up on a dairy farm? I did. Uh, I grew up on a dairy farm, and my brother started uh, Strauss Family Creamery, which was the first organic dairy in the Western United States and first wholly organic dairy processing plant in the U.S. And I worked for Cowgirl Creamery for about six years. Now I'm fully focused on managing our home ranch. So Vivian, tell us how the California Cheese Trail got started and how it's evolved since then. Well, I was invited to be on the board of an economic commission as the agricultural rep and wanted to figure out what I could do to save farms. And I was talking to my friend, Sue Conley, who was one of the co-owners of Cowgirl Creamery. And she said, Viv, make a map. And I thought, oh, I can do that. So I, uh, made some calls to some cheesemakers that I knew of and some nonprofits. And suddenly my home was filled with tons of people. And I created the first map three months later for Sonoma and Marin. And by now, after many iterations, it now includes all of California and over 70 cheesemakers. That's really amazing. And it sounds like you see visiting cheesemakers as a really great way to, to get to know California. It's crazy. You know, when I started doing the projects, I thought, oh, gosh, I got to go visit these places. I don't know what I'm talking about if if I haven't seen them. And I started finding the most incredible parts of California, which you would never go to unless you had a reason. And then you think, wow, who knew this was here? It's it's just a blast. So you're kind of you're going to actually see the cheesemakers and the creamery, but then you're also experiencing the area around the, the creamery as well. And so you're getting a perspective that you normally wouldn't get. Maybe it's a little off the beaten trail from where a lot of tourists are going. 
Exactly. And then sometimes you find out that there are tourist things that are near there. Like I went to see Jollity Goat Farm in the foothills and found out that gold was discovered near there and they have all sorts of things to see and do about that. So you find out that there's, it's in the middle of something else and that's just a blast. And you get to taste all these really amazing cheeses too, I imagine. That must be a, a bonus. <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy. Like, oh no, please don't serve me anymore. Oh yes, please. <laughs> and then you get all their different cheeses and, and they give you stuff to take home and you can buy stuff. And it's just, uh, and they're all different. And it's crazy how many different kinds of cheeses there are and what kinds of creative things that some of the cheesemakers come up with. How do you think visiting a creamery changes people's perspective on cheese and, and how it's made? Well, the great thing is about some of these places, you can actually see how cheese is made. So they will actually give you a class. Like Cowgirl Creamery has a class in Point Reyes. It's during the week usually. And they actually show you how curd making is done. So you get a whole gist of it. And then also, I love meeting the people. I mean, you meet the people who make the cheese and then you have this emotional connection to the cheesemaker and the cheese and, and you want to support them. And you learn a lot about small business and you learn a lot about people and communities and it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, well, it sounds really great. I, I, I would love it if you would take us on a tour of some prime cheese making regions in the state. I guess, you know, since you started the California Cheese Trail in Marin County and Sonoma County, why don't we start there? Why don't you tell us about, you know, what are some of the specialties? What are some of the places to visit in that area? Okay, so if I were in Marin, I actually any of these places to get on a farm tour, you usually have to plan ahead because these things are booked out usually, you know, sometimes a month in advance, sometimes only a week in advance, but it's good to plan ahead if you want to go on a farm tour. So there's like Ramini mozzarella, which is water buffalo, which is very odd. I believe there are only two water buffalo um, herds in California and probably less than a handful of any in the United States. And if you go there, you not only get to taste the mozzarella, you hear the story, and then you the the cheesemaker, Audrey Hitchhock, will take you out with a brush and you get to brush the, the water buffalo. <laughs> and this is one of my favorite things to do because if you brush them, their tails will curl and then they will actually collapse on the ground in ecstasy. <laughs> and it's the most <laughs> bizarre thing you have ever seen, but it is hilarious. <laughs> so that's one of my favorite uh, tours. Point Reyes Farmstead, which is nationwide, actually, their cheese. They were the first blue cheese in California. And they have Friday farm tours where you can go, they greet you with some ice cream, and then they take you into their barn and they give you this whole array of cheese on a cheese platter. And you, you learn about cows, you see what they eat. That's another one I love. And then Cowgirl Creamery has a shop in Point Reyes, where I told you they have that class where you can learn how cheese is actually made, watch the cheese making through the window, and you get to taste, of course, all their cheeses, and you can purchase cheeses there. And then there's Tamales Farmstead, which has a once-a-month tour on the first Sunday of every month, and they have goats and sheep and cheese there, and it's just, like, fun. You get to see the, the, the goats being milked or the sheep, whichever ones, and you get right up close and see it. It's, it's really fun. So why don't you take us to another part of California? I saw on your website that there are quite a few creameries in the Central Valley, which I didn't realize. Yeah, that's kind of the hidden like gem of cheesemaking in California. And I think, you know, a lot of people take Highway 5 to go up and down um, from the Northern California, Southern California. But Highway 99 is just as fast, or I've timed it, it's exactly the same. And you are driving through all these cheesemaker visits. And the very biggest cheesemaker in the world, as far as I know, is Hillmar Cheese. 
and they you can go in there and you see these huge blocks of cheese being made and they have a, a self-guided tour that talks about dairying that is so well done. They have restaurants there. They have, you know, you can purchase cheese there. And it's just kind of fascinating to see something that is so big and yet so accessible. And then there's like Oakdale Creamery where you can, you know, stop by and they, I think they have even some animals you can pet and they have a picnic area and they make grilled cheese and uh, they're a Dutch family. And it's, once again, you can see the cheese through the window Fiscalini cheese has has a, a large dairy that's and and they make cheese on site and you can just go into their little creamery and they have a little just a case where you can buy cheese there but it's you're actually walking onto farms to see this so that's that's very cool and uh, there's another dairy which I actually haven't been to yet called Rocky Oaks Goat Dairy that they have they have goats that's also off Highway 99 and you can take a tour there as well. All right, let's go even further east up toward the mountains. What are what are some can't-miss places for folks headed into the Sierra foothills? Well, one of the places I mentioned was Jollity Farms. That's the one that's near the uh, gold country, and it's near Sutter, Sutter Mill. And then there's Long Dream Farm, and that is an interesting story. That's um, I believe they were a couple of stockbrokers. It's a couple with their children, and they decided they were going to give up New York City and go live in the country and buy some land and prove that you could have make a living being a farmer. Now, I have no idea if they have succeeded, but they are making cheese and butter, and they go to the farmer's market every week, and they have a myriad of animals on that farm that they're just, they have every type of animal, and they give farm tours. So you actually, and they know all their animals, and it's just kind of fun. You know, their dog will come out and greet you, and that's a cool thing to do. And then there's Orland, Orland Farmstead, which is a farm, he has only 25 cows, and, you know, the bull will follow him around. And he met a cheesemaker and she's now making cheese for him. And he, he heats his water in this huge kiln. I mean, you know, nobody heats their water. You know, usually you get it from the city, but he actually heats his own water for the dairy by putting wood in this big kiln and, and heating water. So, you know, people are doing interesting things. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I love the story of the couple, the stock former stockbrokers who decided to just leave the city and go out and go farm and cheese, make cheese. I mean, I love that idea. It's a dream that so many city folk have, you know, and they're actually living it. Yes. Yes, it is. And it's and I think it's probably great for their kids too. So oh, yeah. <laughs> they seem really, really, really happy, I have to say. So Vivian, is, is there like a wild card you want to throw in, maybe a creamery in an unusual location or with an unorthodox aesthetic? You know, it's funny. We Los Angeles has a lot of creameries and you would never know it. They're usually in industrial sections. And there is one cheesemaker, Joya Cheese, which was the first to introduce burrata into the United States. And you can purchase directly from their creamery. And burrata is that incredible mozzarella with the cream inside of it that's wrapped inside. And it's, oh my gosh, it's so rich and cool and delicious. And uh, you can actually buy it right from them. Do you think there are any particular kinds of cheese that people tend to underrate or overlook? I mean, any that you'd recommend trying? Uh, maybe like give us one hard cheese and one soft cheese. Let's see. Okay, well, if you go to a very a hard cheese, I would say Vela Dry Jack, which you can get in the town of Sonoma, is really America's version of Parmesan. And that would be an interesting, they rub it with cocoa and oil, I believe. And that is an interesting cheese if you're looking for a parm that's made in California. 
I, I, you know, I would also try Cowgirl Red Hawk, which is an incredibly unique cheese. It is made, can only be made in Point Reyes because cheeses are made by adding a culture to the milk. And uh, in this cheese, it's actually the Cowgirl Creamily is only able to make this cheese in Point Reyes because the bacteria is in the air and is attracted when they wash the, the cheese itself with a brine. Huh. The culture is then attracted to it and it creates a cheese that can be made nowhere else in the world. That's incredible. What does it taste like? You know, it smells stinky and it doesn't taste stinky. It's like, it looks like a, it looks a little bit like a mm, camembert or something, but it's not white on the outside. It's red or orange on the outside. That's really cool. Um, You know, we have to wrap up soon, but is there anything people need to know ahead of visiting a creamery? I think, I think with wine, sometimes people worry that they, they have to get the etiquette or the terminology right before they go or, and it's usually much more mellow and relaxing than that in reality. Uh, Is that the same with cheese? I would say the things you need to know is just book ahead, check on the website, see where you're going to go. And I would say wear shoes that you don't care about them getting smussed up. You definitely do not dress up for a cheese tour. So, you know, (laughs) especially a farm tour anyway, you know, just enjoy yourself. Wear layers if it's on the coast, you know, and, you know, have fun, be open, taste things, don't be afraid. Vivian, this has been really great. Thank you so much for joining us on California Now. Thank you. Vivian Strauss is a writer and sustainable farming advocate whose family founded the first organic dairy west of the Mississippi. She first set to work on the California Cheese Trail in 2010. You can find out more about trip-worthy creameries all across California at cheesetrail.org. And you can also follow these cheese-obsessed folks on Twitter and Instagram at cheesetrailca. We'll have links to all the places we discussed today on our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. My next guest is the type of person you want around if you're ever in Southern California and trying to decide where to grab dinner. The options are seemingly endless, and Lucas Kwan Peterson is here to help navigate them. He's a food columnist and video producer for the Los Angeles Times. Before that, he wrote for the New York Times' Frugal Traveler column and hosted more than 100 episodes of Dining on a Dime for Eater. Welcome to California Now, Lucas. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So, Lucas, uh, your your new project for the L.A. Times is called Off Menu. Tell us a bit about that. Where did the idea come from? The idea came from just trying to convey the extent of the riches of the food that we have here in Southern California, particularly Los Angeles, which I think now more than ever is the most exciting city to eat in the entire country. And so it was conceived as a way to showcase that and also is a a way to highlight maybe some of the restaurants and businesses and people behind the food that the casual visitor or even someone who lives in L.A. may not have been to or even known about. You know, I think it's it's hard to talk about food writing around Los Angeles without talking about the influence of the late Jonathan Gold, the longtime L.A. food critic and Pulitzer Prize winner. Can you talk at all about his impact or his influence on your work? Absolutely. It's hard to talk about this show without talking about Jonathan, who was uh, a restaurant critic for some 30-odd years, uh, is from L.A., is the first and only food critic to win a Pulitzer Prize. So he's 
extraordinary in so many ways, and his his influence is so felt, and his absence is so felt in the city since he passed uh, a little over a year ago. And so, not that uh, anything could ever could ever replace the the void that he left, but I think the work that we try to do on the food team is is definitely in the service of what Jonathan started and what he created, and definitely this show is influenced by him as well. He became nationally famous, perhaps, for for deciding he was going to eat at every restaurant on Pico Boulevard, which is this uh, enormous street that goes through the heart of Los Angeles. And he was really the first restaurant critic to to highlight the underappreciated, unsung restaurants, the the Salvadoran and Guatemalan restaurants, and the uh, the Laotian places, and and things that 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 maybe aren't on people's radars. And he really helped and elevated that that uh, those businesses, and really helped put those cuisines uh, into people's minds. So I, I want to turn to the to the SoCal food scene, uh, which is as you mentioned, extraordinarily dynamic right now. Michelin is back in town. Fast casual is a thing. Uh, breakfast and coffee, certainly. Where does off-menu fit into this whole ecosystem? I think it complements it. We are focusing on some of the, you know, mom and pop restaurants, uh, undersung, underappreciated, but but we're also working in some some of the fine dining places. We're doing... Uh, an episode that focuses on the San Gabriel Valley, which is east uh, east of downtown and which is essentially the world's largest Chinatown outside of China, obviously. It's, it's this enormous 20-mile swath uh, that has prob- you know, probably the best Chinese food that you can find in North America. And so an episode, of course, has to focus on, on the SGV. And we talked to John Yao, who was who has a restaurant called Cato, who grew up in Walnut, who grew up in the San Gabriel Valley, and who was recently honored uh, with a Michelin star for his for his restaurant, which is in West LA. And so it's it's interesting to focus on some of the smaller places, and then it's also interesting to talk to people like John from Cato, who who are heavily influenced by LA and who grew up here and who have decided to sort of take it another direction in in fine dining. So I think it's I think it's meant to be sort of a, a companion. That's really great. So let, let's talk about uh, that his restaurant. I mean, I'm a big fan of Asian food, of Chinese food. Uh, what makes his restaurant stand out? I mean, what is it? What is there like a California twist to it? Or I mean, you say it's some of the best Chinese food anywhere outside of China. What makes it so special? I mean, in the San Gabriel Valley, absolutely, and I think, and I think Cato is outstanding. Cato, Cato is a, a restaurant in a strip mall in West LA, and John is uh, this young guy, 27, 28 years old, something like that. And he grew up eating Taiwanese food, the food that his parents made when he was growing up in Walnut. And he loves fine dining. And so he's found a way to take, say, a steamed fish, which is on the table at at almost any Taiwanese or Taiwanese American household, especially here in Los Angeles. And he's uh, put his own twist on it and used fine dining ingredients and used sort of those fine dining techniques and sort of elevated into this, uh, not necessarily better, but a different take on comforting 
Taiwanese home cooking. And all of his dishes are sort of influenced by that. He's a really interesting guy, and, and it's, a, it's a great way to sort of showcase how the San Gabriel Valley can influence uh, chefs that live in L.A. today. But, but in that same episode, we also go to a, we go to a traditional dumpling place called uh, Hui Toxiang, and I, I speak with a guy named David Chan who is this incredible uh, uh, vault of knowledge about Chinese food. He, he grew up in Los Angeles, and he's been to 7,500 Chinese restaurants in <laughs> the course of his life, which if you're <laughs> if you do the math is one a yeah. day for about 20 years. So <laughs> That's kind of crazy. <laughs> it's I'm it's yeah, it's insane. But but he's <laughs> he's he's obsessed and it's I mean it's incredible. It's 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 wonderful. And so we we talk for a bit about uh the history of the SGV and how it uh, transformed in the 70s and 80s into what people called the Chinese Beverly Hills. Um, because, uh, you know, as anyone in Los Angeles knows, it's not like there's this condensed Chinatown like you'll find, say, in Manhattan or you'll find in San Francisco. Again, you have uh, the the Chinese and, and uh, Taiwanese-American people from uh, southern China living in in the San Gabriel Valley. So we we talk, and then we go to a, a Taiwanese pastry place called Huge Tree Pastry, which serves these traditional Taiwanese pastries. And we uh, speak to a young woman who's been working there for for in her entire life, and it's great. It's it really feels like a way to dig in to a particular neighborhood and to really explore um, a lot of different facets of uh, both the geography of LA and the different cuisines. You know, one place I wanted to explore with you, uh, which you did an episode on, is Orange County. Uh, tell us about the thrust of that episode. Who did you interview? Where did you go? Things like that. You know, Orange County is is a, a real mystery to a lot of Los Angelinos. It's <laughs> kind of a place that, that, that people don't really know beyond going to Disneyland or beyond, you know, the Real Housewives franchise. And <laughs> But the fact is... Orange County has some of the best food in Southern California. Wow, really? Absolutely. It is incredibly rich. And it's uh, so when you get in your car and you drive, you know, maybe 40 minutes southeast, you suddenly find yourself in, uh, in particular, what we're highlighting on the show is an area called Little Saigon, which is, uh, it sort of comprises the cities of Westminster and Garden Grove. And there is an incredible Vietnamese food scene there, just the best in the country, bar none, possibly the world outside of Vietnam. That's amazing. Wow. So, okay, so you have to tell us some places and, or some dishes. What are some of the places that people must try if they're in Orange County? There's a wonderful place that a chef named Sean Pham took me to during the episode. It's an idea. I don't I don't think I'm pronouncing it right, but it's called Bien Hen, B-I-E-N-H-E-N. And their specialty is Vietnamese drinking food. So, you know, whatever you eat when you're in Hanoi or you know, Ho Chi Minh City and you're uh, and you're drinking beer and you're 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 basically devouring snails and you're devouring what sort of the centerpiece of the episode is this incredible catfish so they do these fried catfishes and if if you've had vietnamese cuisine before you know that that, that the emphasis is um, 
really, you know, balancing light and heavy. And so you've got these all these incredible fresh herbs and rice paper that you're, you know, creating these rolls with, with this tender, flaky, juicy catfish meat. And it's, it's truly wonderful. There's this other place that we go to during the episode. Again, I forgive the pronunciation, but they serve Ban Kuan in the place called Ban Kuan Lu Luen. L-U-U-L-U-Y-E-N. And it's a fantastic restaurant. Uh, is run by a young woman named Delina Ta. And it started in her family's home. And they were, uh, they were preparing these rice sheets. So these rolls that are filled with pork and filled with herbs or these rice sheets that almost look like a ravioli it would be sort of the reference for people who haven't seen it. But inside would be ground pork or ground shrimp. So it's a wonderful story, and it's also just uh, incredible food, uh, very inexpensive, very fresh, uh, very delicious. Let me just uh, ask you this. So uh, so let's talk a little bit about the other uh, cuisines, like Armenian. Like what is a must-try Armenian restaurant that, that visitors really have to check out? If you're in uh, Los Angeles, you, you've got to go to Mini Kebab. Mini Kebab in Glendale, California. Glendale, which is... Uh, a little bit west of Pasadena. Um, it's this hole in the wall run by a husband and wife and their son. And uh, the husband and wife immigrated to this country and, uh, and the son was born here. And they've got such a fantastic family dynamic as their making food in the kitchen every day in this, you know, I think three table restaurant. And the food is and the food is incredible. And the the focus there is on kebabs and the focus is on grilled meats. So you're going to have these uh, really wonderfully seasoned tender chicken kebabs. You're going to have uh, of course the beef kebabs and then you're going to have all the the accoutrements. You're going to have some really, you know, fresh, delicious bread. You're going to have some yogurt. You're going to probably drink this like salty yogurt drink that, that goes along with it. And it's really wonderful. There's, there's a lot of really great Armenian food in Glendale and then in also Little Armenia, which is east of Hollywood. That sounds really great. Well, you know, listen, you know, we have to wrap up soon, but before we go, are there any pro tips or pointers you want people to have as they explore the food of Orange County or Los Angeles? I would say people think of L.A. as a place where you can't walk around. And I, I don't think that's true. I think you can. You may have to drive to a neighborhood, but then you can walk around. So drive, to, you know, you can go to Koreatown and get out of your car and then walk around. You can go... Uh, you know, to Valley Boulevard in the San Gabriel Valley, and you can walk and 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 check out what's there. I would say so. I would say that's the first tip: is don't be afraid to walk. It's L.A. is more walkable than than most people think. I would also say employ technology, but do so with a grain of salt. So you know, everyone obviously has access to Yelp, and I don't look down on Yelp. I don't poo-poo that as, as, as a way to, to find places. But I think you need to sort of make it work for you. Take reviews 
with a grain of salt. It's a good place to find stuff that's new, and then you can sort of like target a few places and go and make your own decisions. It's a good it's a good jumping off point, but you don't want to necessarily uh, believe everything you read on on review sites. That is really great uh, advice. This is this whole conversation has been great, Lucas. Thank you so much for joining us on California Now. Thank you very much. Lucas Kwan Peterson is a columnist and video producer for the food section of the LA Times. He's on Twitter at Lucas Peterson and Instagram, this is great, at Stale Twizzlers. As always, you can find links to everything we talked about today on our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. This is California Now. Thank you for listening to California Now. This podcast is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe and please let us know how we're doing by leaving feedback on our podcast. We read it all and we'd absolutely love to hear what you think about California Now, including which topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Thanks again. If today's episode succeeded in whetting your appetite, well, we're glad we achieved our goal. But don't stop there. Continue your research on the Culinary Experiences channel of our website, where you'll find tons of information about the Golden State's many gastronomical delights. Also, January is California Restaurant Month, and it's the perfect time for foodies to visit. Wine, craft beer, olive oil, Michelin-starred restaurants, roadside burger stands. It's all waiting for you at visitcalifornia.com slash california-culinary.